I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58, we'll be looking at the first 12 verses. And so Sally and George were on their first date. And as they were getting to know one another, Sally declared to George, I'm a vegan. To which George said, wait a minute. Here we are at the fast food joint, and I just watched you eat a whole hamburger. To which she replied, yeah, but I just like to focus on the lettuce and the tomato. Which, of course, yeah, lame joke, but which, of course, does not make her a vegan. Just because you say something doesn't make it so. I can see some applications to some things that are going on in our world today, in society. But just because you claim something, if your behavior doesn't demonstrate it, just claiming it doesn't make it so. I'm a Christian. That's, an, that's also a pretty easy phrase to say. But just saying it doesn't make it so. What kind of behavior would demonstrate that, in fact, we are followers of Jesus Christ? What actions define or at least give evidence that you are a believer? Is it going to church? Is it not breaking the law? I think you might be surprised by what it is that Scripture actually tells us in regard to this. To answer that question, we're going to continue this Sunday with our look at our vision series. As you know, every week we are uh, uh, taking a different biblical text, examining a different biblical text that unfolds one of the uh, values of our vision. And that vision, as we've said before, can be summarized as simply our desire to transform Flower Mound with the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that brings about personal transformation and community formation, Social justice, yes, and cultural renewal, not just here in our town, but we believe through the Metroplex, through the state of Texas, the U.S., and even to the ends of the earth. Now, two weeks ago, when we were last looking at this, we introduced that very important value, that of service, service to others. And we said that when we define service to others, it really is a living out of the gospel. So it doesn't just stay internal. It has to be lived down. And we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And you'll remember that we saw that the question is not, who is my neighbor? But the question to be asked is, to whom am I to be a neighbor? Who am I to be neighborly to? And we learned that the answer to that was anyone whom God brings across our path that needs our help. God calls us to be a neighbor to that person, to show them love. The question that's before us today is, how? How am I to be a neighbor to those folks? How am I to show them love? And the answer is social justice. Now, I can just see some of you saying, wait a minute, no, no. I've been coming to this church because we heard that you don't buy into all this social justice warriors and all this other stuff that's going on out there. You've talked in Sunday school and other venues about the dangers of things like critical race theory and all these things that are unbiblical. Are you going to be retracting that? And let me just first say this. When the Bible talks about social justice, and it is a biblical concept, the term is ours. I don't want to surrender to it. And just because in the last 10 or 15 years, that has been so twisted beyond recognition. What so many of people see as social justice in our culture that so many Christians react against is not biblical social justice. So what is biblical social justice? That's what we want to be able to see. Unfortunately, the term, as I said, does begin to make conservatives and evangelical Christians uneasy. Unless you're a younger conservative evangelical. And then you're a little more open to it. 
But are you open to what is actually biblical or to some of the things that our culture is saying as social justice? These are the questions I want us to look at. I find it interesting when we talk about evangelism, we're called to go evangelize. Then the conservative Christians cheer and the liberal Christians cringe. When we talk about social justice, it reverses itself. The liberal Christians cheer and the conservative Christians cringe. But the reality is when we look at the Bible, as we've been seeing throughout this entire series on the vision, even last week when we took a break from that to look at uh, ordaining both an elder and a deacon, we were reminded again that the gospel is one of both word and deed. I hope that's one of the things that you've picked up all throughout this vision series. The gospel is both word and deed. That means ministry in our lives have to be both word and deed, the telling of the good news and the living it out. In our behavior, these two are always connected. They always go together, so much so that you're going to see it all throughout Scripture once you begin noticing that pattern. Look at what the Apostle James says in James 1.27. He says, What God the Father considers to be pure and genuine religion is this, to take care of orphans and widows in their suffering and to keep oneself from being corrupted by the world. What an amazing statement. We get the second part, keep yourself from being corrupted by the world, moral purity, but also showing mercy and doing justice to those who are dispossessed and those who are hurting. So let's turn now to Isaiah 58, and I want us to look at what pure and genuine religion really is, and I think you might be surprised by some of the things that we see there. So here now, the Word of God, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet, trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up, spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. 
and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Well, thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it's preached to us this morning. Well, people of God, you know, the scripture is absolutely full of reversals. We see them all the time. You have David and Goliath, the little guy up against the big guy, and yet it's the little guy who wins. You get Mordecai and Haman, Haman, the powerful one who exploits others, taking advantage of the righteous Mordecai, setting a trap for Mordecai, and Haman himself is the one who falls into his own trap. But one of the greatest reversals was the one that Jesus declared again and again in his ministry. So, for example, in Matthew 20, 16, he says, The last will be first, and the first last. That, people of God, is the great reversal of the cross. And unfortunately, it's a much more common reversal than you might think, because there are many folks who think that they are one of the people of God, and yet God will say otherwise, as we saw in earlier in our reading of Jesus on the Day of Judgment from Matthew 25. Jesus was all about exposing that wrong view of who we sometimes think that we are. Think about how we constantly expose the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought that they were at the very center of God's will. And Jesus said, not so much. So when we read Isaiah 58, I ask the question, does it perhaps expose us? We come to church, we do all the right things, we say all the right things, we look right. But does this passage in Isaiah 58 expose us as those who claim to believe what the Scripture says in its totality? The questions that we have to look at then, even as we take our, our, our um, orientation from James when he talked about pure and genuine religion, what we then have to answer is, what is genuine religion? What is false religion? And as we look at Isaiah 58, I want us to see three things. We're going to see the problem with false religion then I want us to look at the nature of genuine religion and finally the power with which to do justice. So the problem with false religion, the nature of genuine religion, and the power with which to do justice. So let's start with the first point. What is the problem with false religion? We're going to answer that from the first five verses of our text. Right at the very beginning in verse 1, God makes clear that there is a problem with the Israelites, something is not right. He says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. He's telling Isaiah, this is so important, you need to get the word out. There is a sin here, and it's so big that we need to deal with it. What is that sin? He begins to talk about it in verse 2. Verse 2 is broken up into three stanzas. And as you look at it, it would seem that the people are following God, that they're obeying him meticulously. It seems that they're diligent in all their worship responsibilities. It seems that they're passionate about pursuing God. Look at the beginning of verse 2. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. The uh, The third stanza, they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And yet... By the time we get to verse 3, we see that even despite their obedience, the people are really wondering, why is God not listening to me? Why does God not hear our prayers? Verse 3, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God, what is it? We're doing all the things that we're supposed to be doing, right? And yet you don't hear us. And that's because ultimately there's a problem with their obedience. There's a problem with their obedience. And we can see that if we look again in the middle of verse 2. 
where he sandwiched that in between the other two. Yes, they're doing all those things, but their obedience is no more than external. It's external obedience. He says in the middle of verse 2, it's as if they were a nation that did righteousness. You're doing all these things, you're going through all the motions, as if you were a nation that really did righteousness, and instead did not forsake the judgment of their God. Uh, God is saying, what you're doing is external on the outside, despite your obedience. Your focus is not really on me. You don't long for me. You don't love me. You obey, but your hearts are still set on your own interests. You're self-centered. This is a perennial and perpetual problem for the human race. Some of you who are in our Sunday school class, we're looking at that wonderful book by Ted Tripp, Shepherding a Child's Heart, and we've been seeing that the issue is not to change your child's behavior, but to address the heart, the motivations, the things that drive that behavior. And this is the same thing that's happening here. In the second half of verse 3, God says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. There's going to be a lot here about a day of fast. This was a religious obligation that the Jews had in those days. And even on that day that you're fasting, that you're claiming to be doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing externally, you're still seeking your own pleasure. The NIV translates this as, You do as you please. So despite their obedience, they were failing to love God. In the end, they only loved themselves. And not only did they not love God, but they didn't love their neighbor. The two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They didn't do the second either. Verse 4 opens with, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. The end of verse 3, you oppress all your workers. They are no sooner done with their religious obligation than they are back to quarreling, fighting, and hitting. So what we see is a people, and this is the problem, to answer the question, what is the problem with false religion? A people who have only external obedience, but internally, in their hearts, they fail to love God and to love their neighbor. And so God declares his verdict in the second half of verse 4. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voices be heard on high. As long as your obedience is external and not driven by a heart for me and a heart for others, God is saying, I'm not going to respond even to what is perfect morality, even to what is perfect and fastidious obedience. It will not receive my favor, God says. The interesting thing is, it didn't matter how earnestly they were fulfilling their obligations. They really thought they were doing it right. God was not pleased. Verse 5 is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes, ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? They were doing all the right things. And, and please note, they were sacrificing in order to fulfill that obligation. It was costing them the time and so on. They were taking a day to mourn their sins and to say, oh, look at me and look at me. And they covered themselves with sackcloth and they would spread it on the floor and cover their head with ashes and all. They would go through all that. And God said, I'm still not pleased because the true nature of fasting had been lost. That is, the goal of drawing closer to God had not been realized. Now let's turn this around and stop talking about them and apply it to us. We don't have a day of fasting anymore, but we have other religious obligations that are similar, and they're similar especially because they also involve a measure of self-denial, right? 
Don't we as Christians refrain from morally inappropriate behavior? We don't steal from our workplaces. We don't cheat on our spouses. We don't go around cursing. We know that all these things are wrong. And what we end up doing is the same thing that they did. We end up reducing Christianity to simply a negative. And what I mean by that is we reduce our Christianity to simply refraining from evil. And you know what? If you speak to most of the people in the world, how do they perceive us? When you ask them, what is Christianity? It's simply a bunch of rules about refraining from evil. Don't do this. Don't do that. But we need to ask ourselves, is this really what Christianity is about? Is it just a moral negative? Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do the other. Is that really what pleases God? The reason that we reduce Christianity to a moral negative And you can figure out what the moral positive is. It's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and loving your neighbor as yourself. But the reason that we reduce Christianity to a moral negative is because we want to reduce our obligations down to the level of what's doable. Okay, I'm sorry if I'm stepping on some toes, but that's what we do. We reduce our Christian obligations down to the level of what's doable. That's what the Israelites did with their fasting. God is saying in verse 5, is such the fast that I choose? In other words, is this the kind of fast that I choose where only for a day you humble yourself? Anybody can do a day of fasting. Anybody can go through those motions. It's doable. Just like you and I can be morally righteous on the outside. Look, it really is not that hard to not steal from your work, to not cheat on your spouse, and to not curse, especially when we live affluent lives like us. Like we do. I mean, it's so easy that many unbelievers do it, don't they? In fact, they might even be doing it better than we do. The real question is not what's doable. The question is where is your heart in the doing? That's what God is looking for. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you truly delight in God? And do you truly long to live for other people? That's what God is looking for in those who follow Christ, because that is how Christ lived. Now, I want you to notice, God is not accusing these people of being hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? Somebody who claims one thing and then lives another. No, no, these people were really doing those moral obligations, And they really believed that in so doing, they were pleasing God. They really believed, as we saw in verse 5, that they felt their obedience, their fasting was acceptable to the Lord. That's what you see in the second half of verse 5. And that's why back in verse 3, they're they're generally puzzled as to why God is not responding. They don't understand his lack of response. And maybe you don't understand why is it that God doesn't respond to me. But you see, if all these religious acts are not the things that show our love to God, if this is the problem with false religion that in the end is just external, it's driven by our, still not, our, not a heart that lives for God, then what is God looking for? And that's our second point, the nature of genuine religion, which we'll see in verses 6 through 10. What is the nature of genuine religion? And let's go actually to the New Testament for a moment again and get a shortened summary answer. The Apostle John in 1 John 4.20 says, and listen carefully, he says, if we say we love God, remember, we're talking about loving God and loving our neighbor. 
If we say we love God but hate others, we are liars. For we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love others whom we have seen. So John, right from the very beginning, says, look, our love for God, what James earlier described as pure and genuine religion, our love for God is expressed in our love shown to our neighbor. And you've heard me say that when we show our love to God, it's in serving others, not in serving God. God doesn't need anything from us. He's wholly independent from us. He has no needs. He doesn't need us to serve him. You know, sometimes we say, well, I serve God. But you don't have to go fetch God's slippers in the morning and bring him the morning newspaper. He's got all that covered. The way that we show our love to God is by serving other people. And that love, as we see in verses 6 through 7 and uh, jump to verse 9 and 10, is one that's expressed in social justice, which the word itself just means being just, doing justice in a social setting, in a setting of our society. Look again at verse 6. Hear, hear these words. Is not this the fast that I choose. And by using the word fast, he's talking about it's going to cost you. There's a sacrifice always involved in fasting. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. People of God, we live in a broken and fallen world where people suffer. And it doesn't tell us here to just simply soften the yoke. It tells us to remove it, to destroy it, indeed to break every yoke of injustice. And my friends, we must not dare to minimize the magnitude of this call in Scripture to doing justice. I know that this is where conservatives begin to tune out, where we begin to grow uncomfortable. Like I said earlier, if I were up here talking about, let's go out to the nations as we did a few weeks ago, when we looked at Psalm 96, then we, we cheer. Ah, revival. The minute we say no, but we're also called to do this as well, that's when we begin to grow uncomfortable. But if we're going to claim to believe that the whole of the Bible is God's word, and it is inerrant and infallible and all of it speaks to us, then we must not dare to ignore what God is saying here. And what we see, once we begin to open our eyes, is that the entire Bible, Old and New Testament alike, are heavy with a call to doing justice. What I want you to see is that God not only cares about the poor and the destitute and the needy, but he also cares for them. Not just about them, but for them. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Notice, it doesn't say the Lord cares about the sojourner and the widow. No, no, he actually watches over them. He upholds them. Deuteronomy 10.18, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Again, it's not that just God cares about them. He actually executes justice for them. He loves them. He gives them what they need. But I'm going to go even further. God not, God not only cares about the hurting, he not only cares for them, but the most surprising thing is that God identifies himself with the poor. Proverbs 14.31 Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors God. Hurt the one who is destitute, and you're actually insulting God. Provide for the one who is hurting, and you actually honor God. Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his deed. 
And earlier when Brandon read the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, on that day when he separates the sheep from the goats, did you not hear Jesus say, I so closely identify with the poor, with the hurting, with those who are in need of help, that when you minister to them, it is as if you had ministered to me. This is Jesus saying this. And if you did not minister to them, it is as if you had failed to minister to me. That's how closely God and our Lord Jesus Christ identify with the poor. And so what we begin to see then throughout the Scripture is that the genuineness of our faith, the reality of our faith, is demonstrated through justice, through our behavior in that regard. Now we can begin to make sense of some of these passages. James 2.14, in a passage that's sometimes misunderstood, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You can see what James is saying, and let's wrestle with that text. James is not saying as has been accused at times of saying, that he's introducing that you need to have faith and works to be saved. We have nothing that we can offer God in order to be saved. We depend fully upon the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus did the works for us. He lived the perfect life that none of us is capable of living. And when we put our trust in him, that record of his perfect righteousness is given to us. And our failures, our sins are imputed, that is, laid upon him, and he pays for them on the cross. We know that. That's the gospel that we so often talk about. It is for, it's purely by grace, and you grab a hold of it by faith. But what James is saying is, it's easy to go around saying, I'm a Christian. It's easy to go around saying, I have faith. Right? We saw that at the very beginning of the sermon. You can say whatever you want, but the way you demonstrate it is through your works. The works are not what saves you. Get that clear but they are the evidence that God has saved you in Christ. Do you see that? And if that's not there, then he's saying, what good is that? It's just talk. It's just talk. So heavy is this that Jesus says in that Matthew 25 passage that we read earlier, that the whole criteria by which he will judge on the judgment day will be whether we have done justice. And you might say, well, wait a minute, that sounds again as if he's judging us based on our works, whether we're saved. No, Jesus is not saying this is what saved you, but he will be looking for the evidence of that in each and every one of us. Is it there? Because you see, how we treat the poor reflects what we really think of Jesus, doesn't it? And that's what he was saying in that Matthew 25 passage. If you don't love the poor and the naked and the hungry, then no matter what you say with your mouth... Jesus is saying, you don't really love me. You don't really have a relationship with me. It's just talk. Because whether we do justice or not is the real measure of our hearts. Our love to the destitute and the hurting reveals whether we truly love God and whether we really are followers of Christ. So the genuineness of our love for God is shown, demonstrated by that deep concern for the poor. God doesn't care for the external obedience. At the very beginning of this book, in Isaiah, and this is a call all throughout the book. We know we tend to think of Isaiah as all talking about the coming of the Messiah, but you can't miss how this is inextricably tied. The very beginning, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, God says, Do you think I want 
all these sacrifices you keep offering to me? I have no more, I, I have had more than enough of the sheep you burn as sacrifices and of the fat of your fine animals. I am tired of the blood of bulls and sheep and goats. Remember, he's the one who ordained these things to be done. He's tired of them. Who asked you to bring me all this when you come to worship me? Who asked you to do all this tramping around in my temple? It's useless to bring your offerings. I am disgusted with the smell of the incense you burn. I cannot stand your new moon festivals, your Sabbaths, and your religious gatherings. They are all corrupted by your sins. I hate your new moon festivals and holy days. They are a burden that I am tired of bearing. When you lift your hands in prayer... I will not look at you. No matter how much you pray, I will not listen for your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves clean. Stop all this evil that I see you doing. Yes, stop doing evil and learn to do right. See that justice is done. Help those who are oppressed. Give orphans their rights and defend widows. People of God, God is not being ambiguous in Isaiah 1. It's rather clear. We can't get around what he's saying. He's calling us to put our faith into practice, not just simply go through the religious motions. It's what James said in James one twenty two: be doers of the word and not hearers only. And just a few verses later, what we already looked at, James one twenty seven: religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their, inflict, and their affliction and to keep oneself stained, unstained from the world. We have to hear this. We have to let it weigh upon us. It's costly. It requires sacrifice. I wonder if that's maybe one of the reasons we end up backing away from it. It's so easy to say, I follow Jesus. It's so much more doable to not steal from work because we don't really need to steal. Our lives are pretty just, aren't they? Before I go further, let me just take a moment and say, what does it mean when I keep saying our lives are just or to do justice? You may have been scratching your head, and I've been doing that quite on purpose throughout the whole of this sermon. Because when we hear the word justice, what does it really mean? I think most of us tend to have a Western idea of what the word justice means, not what it means biblically. In the Western world, justice means to exact retribution. I want justice. He stole my car radio. Get that car thief. And I want justice. Make him pay. But that's not the way justice is used in Scripture. Justice, all throughout the Bible, simply means to restore things to the way they ought to be. When a situation is just, it is the way it was always meant to be. It's tied into the Hebrew word for shalom, the word for peace, that word for harmony with God where all things are right. And isn't that really the essence of the gospel? What Jesus has come to do is to make things right again, to restore things to the way they ought to be. Let's face it, for most of us, our lives are just. We have food on our tables. We have cars, multiple cars in our garages. We have good schools for our kids. We don't have rampant and open violence on our streets. We don't face oppression in our jobs. Generally speaking, our lives are just. Our situations are just. I know we have issues. Oh, no, you know, hail came, and now I have to, you know, fix my car, or I have uh, to redo my roof. Those things are for sure things that are problematic. But we have to understand that for many other people, the injustice, the, the, the problems of this world weigh much more heavily upon them than they do for us. I mean, for us, for example, if you get in a car accident and your car is totaled, what does it result in? In, in, in a terrible week of dislocation. 
in which you have to get other people to drive you and this and that. And, you know, you got to deal with the insurance and all that. But you lose some time, you lose some money, but you get over that and you move on. For others, the loss of a car means the loss of their job, which means the loss of their home. And we have to recognize that there are many people in this world who really lack real power to improve their lives. They're locked into cycles of poverty and powerlessness. They are in terrible schools and they have terrible, uh, poor jobs. They lack the money or they lack the skills to improve things that we take for granted and that sometimes we, let's be honest, look down on them for not having. I grew up in the inner city. I grew up without all those advantages. For whatever reason, God had given me a family, a God-fearing family, a Christian, Christ-centered family, a church, and some skills that enabled me and my brother to, as it were, work my way up out of the hood. Not everybody has those things given to them. That's why injustice here in verse 6 is called a yoke. A yoke is something that weighs upon you. Let's face it, some people find themselves in these bad situations through no fault of their own. Cancer came and took away their jobs or their health. And we are more inclined to help people like that. But there are also some people in bad situations because of their own sin, because of bad choices that they've made, mistakes and things that they've done. We're less likely to help those people. And yet we're called here to do justice, to help restore them to the way things ought to be regardless. And when we do that, we begin to then do something that you might be saying, well, this sounds awfully like mercy ministry. Why aren't you just calling it mercy ministry? That's because I want you to see how important and how well tied together these two words need to be. Justice and mercy go hand in hand. Again, in our Western way of thinking, that's not the case. Justice and mercy are exactly opposite, aren't they? Justice is what they deserve for their evil. Get after them. Punish them. Mercy is letting them off the hook. But that's not the case at all, biblically. When the scripture uses that, those, these two phrases, justice is restoring things to the way they ought to be, and mercy is the compassion that you show them that leads to justice. It's because you have compassion on the person, whether they deserve it or not, whether they found themselves in that unjust situation through no fault of their own or because they walked right into it. Here they are now in that situation. And if you have compassion for them, then you care for them. You show them mercy, and that leads to justice. Your act of mercy restores things to the way that things ought to be. And I need you to see how unbreakable that link is. These two complement one another. Mercy leads to justice. They're not opposed. And that's why it doesn't matter whether the person deserves justice or not. In all cases, you're always showing grace. And you see, people of God, that's the real nature of genuine religion. It's where we begin to live out the gospel. Because we recognize what God has done for us. And he equips us and he enables us to show that justice. And that leads me to the last point, which is the power to do justice. And that's so important. You see that in verse 8. Because the last thing I want you to do is to begin to do this out of guilt. And to begin to act this way, trading one external behavior for another. You know, serving the poor can become just another external obedient thing that you, obedience thing that you do. And it's here that we begin to see the real problems with the way it's been used, even in Christianity, over the last 100 years. Because it gets away from the gospel. 
And the gospel is very simple. It's that Jesus has done these things for us. Take a look at verse 8. When we talk about where's the power for us to do these things, I'm going to read it. It's talking about when you do justice, all these blessings break upon you. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Now, you look at that language, your righteousness. And again and again, the book of Isaiah, as the rest of Scripture tells us, is that righteousness is not ours, it is the righteousness of the Lord. In fact, it is the glory of the Lord that comes. So it's this idea, the righteousness in front, the glory of the Lord behind. And when we hear those terms, what do we immediately think of? The whole book of Isaiah has been talking about it. It's the coming Messiah. Is not Jesus the one who is our righteousness? And is not Jesus the one in whom we find the glory of the Lord? You remember 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is our righteousness. When we trust in him as good Christians who understand that part of the gospel, when we trust in him, his righteousness is given to us. We understand that he's the one who embodies the glory of the Lord, as John said. Right from the very beginning in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is Jesus who travels with us then in verse 8, and who gives us this tremendous success. And why? Because Jesus has done for us what we're being called to do for the destitute. And why? Because we're those destitute people. We're the needy. Don't you see that? We're the ones, maybe not physically poor, but we're the ones who are spiritually poor. And what did Jesus come to do? He came to bring justice, to restore things to the way they were, to undo the effects of the fall. That's the gospel. And are we deserving of that justice? No. No, we're not. And yet he still shows us mercy. He still shows us grace. Thank God that Jesus identifies with the poor, because that means he identifies with us. We are the poor. We are the spiritually needy. And yet Jesus was willing to come and live for us and to die for us. There's a passage, we use it quite a bit, in 1 John chapter 1. We use it whenever we want to talk about forgiveness, declaration of sin, uh, declaration of forgiveness at the end of our confession of sin. You'll recognize this passage. First John chapter, uh, first John one, verse nine. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you hear what he said? If you confess your sins, God is faithful. And then you think the next word should be faithful and merciful to forgive. But it doesn't say that. It says faithful and just to forgive. Because God is a just God. He's already paid, had Jesus pay the price for our sins. And so since he's paid it once, he's not going to make us pay it again. It's mercy is what leads to that form of justice. So once we recognize that Jesus has done this for us, even to, as Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Once we see that we have received his justice, he's given us his righteousness, then we can begin to see that's what we're showing other people around us. And when we do that, when we begin to care for the others around us, then we get all those blessings that are laid out here in verses 10 through 12. I won't read them again, but that language in there. Then when you pour yourself out for these folks, then will God truly bless us as a people. 
And understanding that motivation here is so key because a lot of folks in the church for the last 100 years, you've heard of the social gospel, right? And what's the social gospel? It's this idea of putting the cart before the horse. It's where all the focus has been on caring for the poor and needy as if that were the gospel. Do these things and God will accept you. But what we see so clearly in our passage is God has already accepted you in Christ. He's already shown you the spiritually poor mercy and compassion. And he's improved your situation and promised you a day in which Jesus will return and makes all things perfectly just. Because of that, we then show compassion to those poor and needy here on this earth. So they can begin to see something of the love of Christ through us. Getting that order is so important. So many liberal Christians have made the gospel, uh, made social justice not the result of the gospel, but the gospel itself. And that's wrong. But just because they've messed that up, we dare not lose this message that is found all throughout Scripture. God has shown us grace in Christ, and because of that, we respond. Yes, as James said, by refraining from what is morally inappropriate. We've heard that message again and again and again all our lives growing up in church. But I want you to hear this other message by showing love and kindness, doing justice to the poor and the needy, the helpless and the hurting. May God enable us to do that so that we can show that same love that Christ has shown us to all those who need it. Not only then can we say, I'll end with Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May we recognize that and model it for others. Let's pray.